Well, I think it's easy, probably fairly common, uh, for us to live our lives in such a way that we primarily allow ourselves to be influenced throughout life by what we see and experience in the, in the natural realm every day, that which is right in front of us day in and day out, instead of allowing our lives to be primarily guided by that which we cannot see, regardless of what is right in front of us at any given moment, which is, of course, a significant aspect of, of our faith, of having faith as a follower of Jesus Christ, the faith to trust in that which is unseen. And yet, obviously, we cannot and we should not ignore the reality of our surroundings as we go through life, right? For we know that God is the God of the supernatural and He's the God of the natural. He's the God of the heavens and the earth. He's uh, the God of the spiritual and the physical. And so obviously, I'm not, nor would I ever suggest that we ignore the reality of our daily lives that we're, we're able to see with our eyes and touch with our hands. I'm simply saying that at the same time, we should not ignore the equally genuine reality that there is an unseen aspect to our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, and an unseen uh, spiritual realm, if you will, that we cannot perceive with our eyes or touch with our hands. And yet I think that sometimes we pay little to no attention to that very real activity that is going on as God is working through us and around us all the time on our behalf, simply because it isn't always as naturally discernible by our physical senses. And so I think it can be easy for us to forget sometimes that God is constantly at work even when we don't always see the evidence of that. And so as a result, when we don't have something that we need, we often become anxious about our lack, even though Jesus said, your father knows what you need before you ask him, Matthew 6, 8. Paul said, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4, 19. Or, or when we're uncertain about our future, we can become completely unsettled about things that may or may not even happen, even though David said, in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Psalm 139, 16, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. And God explained to Jeremiah concerning his people that I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope, Jeremiah 29, 11. Or sometimes when we feel alone and, and vulnerable and weak, and so we fearfully search for something to fill that emptiness, even though God said to Isaiah, fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41.10. See, it can be easy for us to become, I think, seduced into patterns in life where we're constantly reacting to whatever we see or sense right in front of us rather than trusting in that which we cannot see or sense in that moment. And so we can work ourselves half to death trying to fill the need or secure the future or create a different picture for ourselves, which inevitably for so many people turns into total burnout from the constant effort of trying to manage these burdens that we were never intended to carry. That's wholly exhausting. 
that is a wholly exhausting way to live, which, uh, by the way, I can testify to firsthand. I'm the poster child for take control and get it done so that all the uncertainties are removed from the picture. But, of course, when you try to live that way, first of all, the only person that you're fooling is yourself. And in the process, you just wear yourself out because the fact is we can never tie off all of the loose ends. We can never guarantee our own future. We can never see to it that every single need is met before the need even arrives. And yet that doesn't stop many of us from trying, which ultimately leads us to more frustration and often severe weariness, if not total burnout. And so as a part of the, the process of maturing as a, as a Christ follower, we have to learn to trade in our reliance on what is seen for what is unseen. We have to be willing to exchange our trust in that which is measurable for the one who is altogether immeasurable. We have to be able to relinquish our confidence in what we can control to the God who could never be controlled. By the way, I'm not talking about a lack of effort uh, on our part. No, we were created to work hard and give 100% effort in all that we do. I'm talking about the things that we allow to control us, specifically our thoughts and emotions, after we've done our level best. I'm talking about what we allow to go on between our ears, even when we're diligent and faithful to that which God has called us to. Okay, now, there are people who worry about their future because they're lazy. They don't take responsibility for themselves or their families and they expect everything to be given to them and they're unwilling to do anything that they find uninteresting or difficult. Quite honestly, those people should be worried. They should. Second Thessalonians 3.10, Paul says, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And in 1 Timothy 5.8, he explains that if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. All right? If the Bible describes you as worse than an unbeliever, you should probably be worried. Now, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that we feed hungry people all the time. We do. We clothe people, particularly in the, in the wintertime, people who lack the proper clothing for cold weather. Uh, we've paid more power bills and gas bills and repair bills than I can count in the last three years. Okay, there is, uh, there is genuine need in people's lives all around us all the time, without a doubt. People who are hurting and in great need for all kinds of reasons. And with genuine compassion, uh, we pay attention to and respond to those needs on a regular basis. People walk into my office almost daily with all kinds of needs. And yet there's also a percentage of the population who have everything that they need at their disposal to care for themselves and their families, but they refuse to do so. S scripture reserves some pretty harsh words for those people that choose to live that way, okay? But those are not the people that this message is focused on this morning. We're talking about those of us who fret and worry and strive to take care of things that we're not responsible to fret or worry or strive for. Because there are aspects of our lives where only God can affect the outcome, all right? Once we've done all that he's commanded us to do, once we've been diligent in our work and committed in our care for others and consistent in our spiritual disciplines that go along with being a Christ follower, once we've done all that we can to see to it that our bodies are healthy and our families are secure and our needs are met, what happens after that in the future 
is entirely up to God because he is in control. We are not. No matter how hard we try, God is always in control. And just because we cannot see anything happening in our favor or on our behalf at times, that does not in any way mean that nothing is happening. Because God is constantly working on our behalf. And so at times, we simply need to wait for Him to act, even though we cannot see or always discern uh, His work while it's happening. Isaiah 64.4 describes God as one who acts for those who wait for Him. Certainly, God often works through other people and circumstances that we can observe and interact with while He's working. But sometimes that's not the case. After Jesus rose from the dead and appeared before Thomas, who finally decided to believe that Jesus was in fact alive, only after seeing him with his own eyes, Jesus said to Thomas, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John 20, 29, 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9, uh, Peter speaking about the hope that we have in Christ. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Okay, so although we tend to put a lot of stock in that which we can see, honestly what should truly ground us, what should anchor our confidence for a good future, should ultimately be found in what is unseen. And so we're going to talk about God's unseen work today, because that's exactly where our text is taking us as we continue working our way through the book of Daniel this morning. And we'll be uh, picking up the story right where we left off last week at chapter 10. Um, and just to set the stage before we read, the last three chapters uh, of this book, chapters 10, 11, and 12, uh, are all one big vision split up between those three chapters. And so chapter 10, which we're looking at today, is really an introduction to the main thrust of the vision which comes in the next two chapters. And yet, there is a message here in chapter 10 that we do not want to miss this morning because it has very meaningful application for our lives today when it comes to the unseen activity that God is engaged in on our behalf. Okay, so let's read it together, starting with the first three verses. It says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. So this was the third year of the reign of Cyrus. It's 536 B.C., which means that two years earlier, the first group of Jewish exiles had returned to Jerusalem to begin the rebuilding process under the decree of Cyrus and the leadership of Ezra. However, they were facing, at this point, severe opposition. And so the work had actually stopped. And the people there, as you can imagine, were under great discouragement. Uh, the Hebrews had lived in captivity at this point for decades, waiting for an opportunity to return to their homeland and rebuild their city and the temple. And now that they've finally made it there, 
They're unable to fulfill this dream of rebuilding because of the conflict they're facing from those around them who didn't want the city to be rebuilt. And so Daniel, uh, who did not return with this group of exiles, uh, probably at this point because he's 84 years old, uh, much more able to uh, help his people to affect change for his people from his high position in government than he would have been in actually doing the rebuilding work. So he stayed behind. And yet... As a point of identification with the discouragement of his people who were facing overwhelming opposition, Daniel was in mourning for three weeks. He stopped eating the choice foods that were available to him. He stopped drinking wine. He abstained from using the lotions that were commonly used. Uh, They made life in the dry, arid, desert climate uh, much more bearable. And so Daniel is seriously down in the dumps over the reality of what was happening to his people uh, as the dream that he'd held for so long was not panning out how he thought it would. Now, how many of us can relate to that, right? Life certainly doesn't always turn out like we think that it will. We can, we can mourn the circumstances that are happening in the physical realm in our everyday lives, and we do often, but we should never forget even in that morning that as much as there is always activity happening in this world every day that affects the lives of everyone in it, there is just as much, if not more, otherworldly activity happening in the spirit realm that we cannot see that affects the everyday lives of people as well. And this is something that Daniel is about to find out as we continue in our story. Let's keep reading verses 4 through 6. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And if you weren't Daniel at this point, you'd probably check yourself into the urgent care facility. But he's used to this sort of thing, right? He's been seeing these visions most of his life now. So Daniel's standing on the bank of the Tigris River, and he sees a man who is obviously not of this world. It says he was clothed in linen. It was probably like the fine white linen that the priests wore. Uh, it says that he had a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. Uh, we're told from the Jewish Talmud, uh, which is a collection of ancient Hebraic rabbinical writings from the second century that the Uphaz was a gold-bearing region in ancient times that produced some of the finest gold that there was. In fact, it had a particular hue. So if you knew your gold, like Daniel would, being in his position in government, you could recognize where that gold had come from. It says that his body was like beryl, which was a precious stone uh, that was translucent. Some scholars believe it is akin to topaz, what we call topaz today. His face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like bronze, and his voice like a multitude. There are similarities here with this vision and the vision that John has of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1. However, this was uh, most likely an angel that actually reflected the glory of Christ rather than the Christ himself because as we'll see later in chapter 13, this, this person speaking to Daniel says that he needed help in his fight against the spiritual forces over Persia. And of course, Jesus wouldn't need to ask for help from an angel while doing battle. We also see other instances in Scripture, particularly <coughs> excuse me, in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel sees angelic beings dressed in linen um, in chapter 9 and, and those who reflected the glory of God in chapters 1 and 10 at least. Uh, so Daniel's confronted here 
by an angel who many scholars believe to be the angel Gabriel because he is the one who appears to Daniel in his earlier visions. Although we don't know for certain that it was Gabriel, it probably was. Uh, But clearly, he brilliantly reflects the glory of Jesus Christ. And the effect is overwhelming for Daniel. Just as we've seen in past chapters, Daniel is totally wrecked at the sight of God's messenger. Let's read on, verses 7 through 10. It says, And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. And then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. So Daniel is out cold on the ground as soon as he sees and hears this angel of the Lord. And honestly, you know, who of us wouldn't be, right? When you read the description here, it must have been absolutely terrifying. And this wasn't even Jesus himself. Simply an angel reflecting the glory of Christ. And I think it's worth pointing out here as a side note. You cannot have a true encounter with Jesus Christ and remain unchanged. In fact, people who say to me that they tried Jesus once and he just wasn't for them, I'm just telling you, I'm not personally convinced that they've actually had an encounter with Jesus Christ. They may have tried religion once, but I'm not sure they've had a true revelation of Jesus Christ because you don't encounter him and remain the same. In fact, you can go to church, you can learn all the songs, you can read your Bible and give in every single offering and still not encounter Jesus Christ. Which is why I believe that we have churches all over the world that have some number of people in them who have never actually encountered Him. You can be a religionist without actually knowing God and those folks are to be pitied more than anyone because they never actually experience the transformation that occurs when when you've had a true revelation of Jesus Christ even though so many of them believe that they have. Which also, by the way, makes them very dangerous to the church. In fact, Paul says to avoid them. Uh, He writes to Timothy, In the uh, the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And then he says, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. This is a description of very religious people who have not actually experienced Jesus Christ. Because those who have encountered him, although not perfect people, none of us are perfect. We talked about that last week. But we're certainly changed people. Just as we've seen with Daniel throughout this book, who is so deeply affected to his core by the revelations that he's had of Jesus Christ directly, and even of the glory of Jesus reflected in the image of his heavenly messengers as we see here. And then as we continue to read, 
Let's pay close attention to what this angel, uh, who most likely is Gabriel and will refer to him as such, what he says to Daniel because what he's describing to Daniel is truly astonishing. Not only as a story in and of itself, but in its implication for every follower of Christ today. All right, let's keep reading verses 11 through 14. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come." The explanation by the angel here as to what has been happening in the unseen realm for the previous three weeks based on the combination, of course, of God's sovereign plan for his people and Daniel's own prayers is startlingly impressive, particularly when you consider the implications that it has for us today. All right, in verse 12, the angel explains to Daniel that from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words, he says, meaning your prayers, have been heard. And I've become, I've come because of your, your words. So this terrifyingly powerful warrior angel who's reflecting the glory of Christ has come because Daniel has been praying for his people. Right? And, and we talked about prayer that works last week. How when we pray God's word and we pray with repentance and we pray with humility that God hears and responds to our prayers. And that's exactly what Daniel has been doing. And so we're now witnessing that direct response by God to Daniel's prayers. And the result of those prayers is that there's three weeks of unseen spiritual activity a great battle, in fact, that takes place before Daniel ever experiences the first inkling of any response in the natural realm from God whatsoever. But finally, after three weeks of fighting with the evil angelic forces that are trying to stop him, the word that the, the angel uses, Gabriel uses, to describe the prince of Persia in verse 13 is the Hebrew word sar. It refers to a, a patron angel. It's used in scripture to describe both good and bad uh, angelic uh, beings who were set as guardians over people, or as we see here, over entire kingdoms. And so this angel speaking to Daniel explains that he's locked in a battle with the patron an angel over Persia, and the fight is so intense that he finally calls for backup from the more powerful Michael, who is described as one of the chiefs of the Tsar. The word chief there is the Hebrew word reshon. It means first in rank. So Michael, who according to verse 21 in this chapter and later in uh, chapter 12, is the Tsar, the patron angel to the people of Israel specifically, is also first in rank among the patron angels. And so he shows up to this great battle to help Gabriel to allow Gabriel to finally get to Daniel to deliver this message from God. This is a startling picture of what's happening in the spirit realm. Indeed, a remarkable insight that we're given. And the point that is to be made here that should truly shape our perspective on how and when our prayers get answered is the fact that unseen activity always precedes any perceptible response to prayer. 
You follow me? In other words, when, when we pray, there is always an unseen spiritual response to that prayer that must take place before we can experience the answer to that prayer in the natural physical realm. Obviously, uh, based on Daniel's experience, that can take some time. It may be a while before we are able to actually see God's answer to our prayers. But that clearly does not mean that he's not answering. Again, the angel says to Daniel, From the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God. So again, you'll remember from last week that how we pray actually matters in terms of our prayers being heard and answered. There are all sorts of examples in Scripture where God doesn't listen or doesn't hear our prayers. We talked about that. Daniel obviously understood that because even the angel here acknowledges Daniel's pursuit of understanding through God's word. Daniel prayed God's word for himself and for his people. And the angel also acknowledges Daniel's humility or his humble posture in his prayers. And then he says, from that first day that you began praying that way, your words have been heard and I've come because of your words. So there's an immediate response by God to Daniel's prayers. But Daniel doesn't see or directly experience any response whatsoever for three full weeks. Why? Because of what has to take place in the unseen realm first. Now, we should really allow that to sink in and bury this truth deep inside our most basic understanding of how prayer works because the fact is some of you have been waiting a very long time for some of your prayers to be answered. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you're praying God's word with repentance and humility as we saw Daniel doing last week and again here, then I, I know, in fact, I'm supposed to tell you this morning that God has heard your prayers and even though you haven't seen any evidence of a response by him yet, he has heard from you the moment that you began praying and he has in fact responded to those prayers. You simply need to know today with all confidence and all faith that if you're still waiting on an answer to that prayer, there are spiritual battles taking place in the unseen realm on your behalf as a direct result of your prayers. And that needs to take place before you experience the answer that you've been waiting for because prayer is a spiritual transaction with a natural outcome. It's not the other way around. And yet we struggle sometimes trusting in the sovereignty of God over every situation and circumstance in our lives because we can't always discern God's hand at work on our behalf because so much of that work that is happening is being done in the unseen realm. In fact, Daniel struggled with it. Even after he was given a glimpse of what was taking place on the behalf of, of him and his people, as we see in, in the next five verses. Let's read it together. Uh, verses 15 through 19. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. Behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. 
Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. So Daniel gets a glimpse of what's actually been happening for the past three weeks while he's been fasting and praying. And it upsets him so much, the weight of the reality of the spiritual activity, uh, the war that is raging in the unseen realm over his people because of the evil forces of the enemy who want to stop God's will from being accomplished and Daniel's prayers from being answered. And I know that we uh, often wonder and probably even pray sometimes, God, why is there no response? Why haven't I been given the answer to my prayer? It's been weeks. It's been months. For some of you, it's been years. But look, this may be one of those situations in life where ignorance is bliss. Because if we were able to actually see what was happening always in response to our prayers in the unseen realm, we may not be able to handle it. Daniel became physically ill, severe pain, he says, and so weak that the wind was knocked out of him. He couldn't breathe. Okay, this scene for Daniel, the, the glimpse of spiritual activity that was taking place uh, on Daniel's behalf, by the way, was nonetheless so devastating it was too much for him to take in. And so the angel touched him to help him regain his composure. Okay, when we pray and we don't immediately experience a palpable response by God to that prayer, it is so important for us to understand that that does not mean that God is not responding. It simply means that we cannot always perceive his response. In fact, it may be best for us that we don't until he chooses to sovereignly reveal that answer to us. Unless we think, by the way, that uh, this is just an ancient story that only applies to Daniel in this specific situation or in this day. Listen to what Paul says about all believers. In Ephesians 6, 12 and 13, he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That sounds a lot to me like exactly what is happening with Daniel here, doesn't it? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. In other words, don't give in to fear or despair or doubt or hopelessness. No, Paul says stand firm because the forces of God are fighting the battle in the unseen realm on our behalf. God is taking care of that which we cannot take care of. So stop worrying about what is not yours to worry about. He's handling it. Look, conflicts on earth reflect conflicts in heaven. That's why Jesus told us to pray, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because there is unseen spiritual activity that always precedes any perceptible response to our prayers. And so Paul teaches us to stand firm. He says, stand firm because the answer will come. Just as the angel teaches Daniel in verse 19 when he tells him, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. In other words, stand firm. Even though you don't see the good result of God working in your life yet, because in His perfect timing, you will. Okay? Let's finish our text for this morning where we find one more really significant point about God's unseen work in our lives. Verses 20 and 21. Then He said, Do you know why I've come to you, 
But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. Great. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these, Michael, your prince. So the angel is about to reveal more of the vision to Daniel, which we'll see in chapter 11 when we get there. But he also explains to Daniel that he has to go soon because he has to get back to the fight that he was in the middle of on his way to meet with Daniel. And not only that, but he explains that the demonic forces over Greece are coming to join the party as well. So essentially, this angel shows up and says to Daniel, I'm sorry I'm late. Been fighting with the evil forces over Persia, so I called for Michael, the, the angelic protector of your people, to take over for me so I could fly over here and deliver a message from God in response to your prayers. But I need to be kind of quick about it because I have to get back and finish beating up on a few more bad guys before your prayers can ultimately be fulfilled. This is an awesome an awe-inspiring glimpse of what happens in the unseen realm when we pray. It's also strong evidence that God always finishes what he starts. You see, he not only does Gabriel explain that he has to get back to the fight, that the patron angels of Persia and Greece, he's got to get back there and finish that battle, but he says something very insightful to Daniel in verse 21 as well that we don't want to miss. Just before he reveals the vision to Daniel that we'll read about when we get to chapter 11. Before he reveals that vision, he says to Daniel, I'm going to tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. Now, clearly he's not talking about the Bible because what, he, what he's about to reveal to Daniel from the book of truth uh, hadn't yet been recorded as scripture, right? Obviously Daniel wrote all of this down after it happened and yet the angel refers to the vision that, uh, that he hasn't revealed yet as being inscribed in the book of truth. Now the words book of truth that Gabriel uses is the Hebrew phrase kathab emeth. It's literally translated as the writing of truth. And in this instance it's referring to God's record of truth in general of which the Bible is one expression. In fact there are uh, many references in scripture that refer to books that are in heaven that contain the records of human works or human destinies. And the fact that it's described as the writing of truth here, or the book of truth, clarifies for us that the events in our lives that have yet to happen are already recorded in heaven by God. We already read Psalm 139, 16 says, In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Ephesians 2.10, Paul says, We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God formed every one of our days and he recorded them in his book before we ever existed, which not only tells us that he's not surprised by anything, which should give you great comfort, but it also means that our entire story has already been written, which means that what God has begun, God will finish. He's not hampered or held up by time as we know it because he created time. He's not surprised by what happens to us throughout our life stories because he is the author of those stories. And he's not waiting to find out how the story will end because he's already written and recorded the end in his books that are in heaven. 
You see, our future as followers of Christ is secure. In fact, we are assured that he will finish what he started in each of us. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi that I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 Because God doesn't leave loose ends. He doesn't abandon projects. And he doesn't give up even when we do. No, God always finishes what he starts. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, then he has begun a good work in you. And so whatever it is that you're praying for, listen to me, if you're praying according to his will, then you can rest assured that he is going to provide you with the answer that you need because that answer has already been formed and written in his books, forever recorded in heaven to be revealed at his appointed time. What you're praying about is already written in his books, which we don't have access to. And as we see with Daniel, maybe that's a good thing. The books and those events recorded in them for us are unseen, but that in no way diminishes the fact that they are as real as this book that I'm holding in my hand right now. And the point is this. If we go through life only being attentive to the work of God that we can see in the natural, physical realm, then we are missing out on the most powerful work that he's engaged in. The work that he's constantly doing on our behalf in the unseen realm. His most powerful, most effective, most life-altering work is done in the Spirit. Our, our salvation, of course, is the ultimate example of that. It's the unseen work that truly changes the world. And so I find that passage in Matthew where Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray so brilliantly tied to Daniel's prayer life. In fact, last week we paralleled that prayer, the Lord's Prayer, with Daniel's prayer in chapter 9. And if we go back three verses before Jesus begins the prayer in Matthew 6 verse 9 and we read what he says to them just before teaching them what to pray, in verse 6 he teaches them how to pray. He says, when you pray, go into your room and and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Are you getting this? Because it all ties together. You see, God's most powerful work is done out of sight. It's unseen, in secret. And the single most powerful activity that we as Christians can ever engage in is prayer. And how did Jesus teach us to pray? Out of sight unseen, in secret. So don't give up hope over your prayers that seem to be unanswered. On the contrary, hide yourself away with God and trust that what you pray in those secret places, He is, He is working, He's working it out on your behalf in those secret unseen places first. And in that time while you wait, and some of you are waiting, I know, in that time while you wait for the physical outcome of that spiritual activity, you can take rest in the counsel of Gabriel, who said to Daniel, O man greatly loved, O woman greatly loved, 
fear not. Peace be with you. And be strong and of good courage.